media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles back to Mark chapter 2. We're going to continue on this morning as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark. My favorite gospel. I love them all, but this is by far my favorite. Uh, I love the urgency that uh, Mark has to get to the cross, to get to the resurrection, so that we can see the fullness of this mission of the life of Christ. Uh, perhaps in Christianity, uh, and maybe just in the world, you've heard this phrase before, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Or maybe you've heard it reversed, to, to love the sinner, but hate the sin. And, and we use that uh, a lot of times, and it's one of those that has some application. It's one of those phrases that uh, uh, has much truth and rightness to it. Uh, but it is one of those, I think it fits into my uh, bumper sticker kind of theology, that unless you really attach that to the fullness of the gospel, it really actually becomes untrue. <laughs> it's actually one of those things that doesn't fit. It, it really needs to be expanded beyond just those words. Because if we just come to the simplicity of that, you know, to love the sinner but hate the sin, uh, we kind of miss the fullness of the gospel. And so this morning we want to look at that because truth is, this is a phrase that they could have maybe used years and years ago, 2,000 years ago, when the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders were there. Maybe those people had a mentality that, okay, you know, we are to hate the sin, but we're to love the sinner. And, but perhaps not. Because during Jesus' time, the religious leaders of that day, pretty much if it would have been characterized of just what people thought about them, that they hated the sin and they hated the sinner. They were not always very, very nice to those people that found themselves in sin. And so this morning we begin to look that, uh, you know, not at this phrase, but what the, the Bible begins to tell us about this next account in Jesus' ministry. So you take the redeeming work out of, Christ, uh, out of the cross and you begin to ex- understand a phrase like that, to, to love the sinner but hate the sin. You take it apart from Christ's work and you begin, ta- you begin to take away God's holy hatred for sin. And I think sometimes that in, in modern theology, we've kind of minimized that. Folks, the Bible makes it very, very clear that God has a holy hatred for sin. Not just a hatred for sin, but it's a holy hatred. It's a pure hatred. It is something that is one of his perfections. And yet, it is one of those things that sometimes we go, yeah, but he hates the sin, but he doesn't hate the sinner. And, and, and that's both a yes and a no. Uh, David Platt, maybe you've heard of him before. He got in a lot of trouble a couple of years ago because he made the, uh, he was preaching one time and he says, God hates sinners. And, uh, oh, it was in the news. It was in everything. And he wasn't saying that God did not have a redeeming love that was available for all people. He was not trying to say that God hates sinners in the sense that he's just vile against He was saying, who is it that kind of encompasses sin? People. Our sin is not apart from us. Our sin is a part of us. And he had text after text after text after text. And yet, modern Christianity, we really don't like that. We want a God that, yes, hates evil things, but loves us in spite of our evilness. And there's a part of that that is actually true. 
It's one of those things that's so hard. It's, it's such a slippery slope, unless you look at the fullness of the gospel, that you're almost always going to be misunderstood. If I said today, you know, God hates sin, and he actually hates sinners, I could back that up biblically. And that's the bad news. And I could then give you the good news of the gospel. And I know that there'd be a lot of people going, you know, I just don't know that. I believe that. It really isn't important if you believe myself, if you believe a David Platt. The biggest thing is, what are you going to do with God's word? And so that's why we always want to go to God's word and say, okay, what does the Bible say? And how do we understand this in the fullness? Because John certainly is going to say in First John that God is love. And that he loves people. And so we're not going to deny that, but then we can point to all these other places. I say all that because we think that sometimes when we wrestle with things, that it's just a modern thing, that we're the ones that have wrestled with it, perhaps for the first time. And I want you to know that there was a wrestling match going on in Mark chapter 2. It was when Jesus was talking to a group of people, and he came upon a tax collector by the name of Levi, Matthew, you can see his uh, name referred to in both ways, and uh, and he calls Matthew to follow him. And the religious leaders that by this time of Jesus' ministry is starting to really begin to take note. If you remember where we left off last week, they you know when Jesus healed the paralytic, and the first thing that he did before he said rise up and walk, he said your sins are forgiven. And remember, they were just appalled. They said, this is blasphemy. And blasphemy was the worst sin that you could do in their eyes because it was an offense against God and all that God was. And they said, Jesus, do you know what you've done? And Jesus, basically, my word said, I know exactly what I've done. I made this statement on purpose because I want you to see my mission. I want you to really see who I am. When we begin to wrestle with this, as they began to wrestle with it, uh, we begin to see that Jesus brought a whole new understanding to sin. See, Jesus had no problem calling sin, sin. He did not water it down. And yet we see in his relationships that he began to build that he was always loving. He was always a reminder that these people need a Savior and that that was his mission. Well, we look at how shocked the religious people were when they saw these interactions, though. I mean, they were shocked when he bent down to comfort a woman who was called in adultery. Remember that story? And the religious leaders, they could not handle that. They're going, do you know that you just defiled yourself by even coming close to this woman? In any way, how could you befriend her? In any way, how can you give her hope? The disciples themselves, even after they had seen Jesus Many, many times in the midst of sinners, they were very aware of his mission and his methods. They were shocked one day when they came back and they saw Jesus talking to a woman at a well known for her illicit living. This continual shock happened time after time after time. There was that time, remember, when Jesus saw a wee little man, Zacchaeus? And he said, I'm going to have lunch with you to do. And if you would have been there that day, you would have heard this collective, from all the religious leaders. This wrestling match between who Jesus is, the truth of his mission, and what the preconceived kind of thought of what religious really meant and what was right and holy is continually kind of in this grabbing and wrestling match back and forth, and and we still do it today. Last week, again, Jesus made a great claim. He says, I forgive you of your sin. 
And, and I think that there would have been that collective, oh, what did he just say? And yet Jesus meant very purposely to do that. He said that, you know, they said only God can forgive sins. And that was why Jesus said that. He didn't do it to shock people. He did it to make the statement, I want you to know that today you are in the midst of holy God. The continued message of his uh, ministry. And so we begin to see this morning that uh, Jesus is going around calling sin, sin. He's not watering it down, and yet he's not going around with a bunch of rocks in his pocket ready to stone people from their sinfulness. No, and just the opposite. He's there to offer them a hope from their despair. The events that we find in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, happen right after Jesus' proclamation that he has the ability to forgive sin. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, now, just to demonstrate what this looks like in real life, <laughs> I'm going to go and I'm going to call somebody that you think is probably a chief of all sinners, a tax collector. Look at Mark 2, 13. And he went out again, that is, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds were uh, was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So the teaching ministry and the crowds are still coming. And look what happens in verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. When we take Mark's account and we kind of harmonize that with the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke both tell of the same story, we find that this is another one of Jesus and his callings of the disciples. And we see this disciple called Levi, who's also Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and we see that this Matthew, whose name means a gift of God, are the same person. And while we don't find a long list of details about Matthew, we don't see a lot of his background and all that, really all that we need to know is found right there in verse 14. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. He was a tax collector. Now, no amount of background can probably prepare us to paint the picture of how hated and despised the tax collectors were to the Jewish people. You know, somebody said, well, they were kind of like the IRS agents of today. They were, but much worse. We can say, well, you know, they were hated because they stole and they extorted, uh, extorted people uh, out of their money. And they did, but it was much worse. Tax collectors were the poster children of what people in their mind thought sin really looked like. Let me give you three reasons why the people were so animant in their hatred, their despising of tax collectors. And it kind of went down to their political views. It went down to their religious views. It went down to their pocket. You're talking about hitting people in three places that they have deep feelings. Their political views, their religious views, and their pocket. Would you agree that even today, 2,000 years later, that those are three subjects that can really bring out, let's just say passion in people? <laughs> well, that's what happened here. The tax collectors were despised. Number one, they stole money by taking more taxes than what people really owed. I'll explain that a little bit more uh, just in a little bit. Uh, they were considered traitors because they worked with the Roman government. In order to be a tax collector, you actually had to buy uh, a section of a city and you could collect taxes there, but you were collecting them for the Roman government. And so you were, uh, a, you know, working with them. 
And you can only imagine the Jewish people who were so ready for a Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans and get rid of this, you know, authority government over them. They didn't want anybody. They were, they were looked upon tax collectors as traitors. You've sold us out for your pocketbook. The third reason is that they were considered spiritually unclean um, because they didn't keep the Mosaic law. Now, again, these three things there, when we begin to see those, uh, it, that hits the deepest passions of our lives. Our politics, our, our, spirit, you know, our religious views, our, our pocketbooks. Folks, nobody likes paying taxes. But back in those days, the tax collectors were especially hated because even though you can see there, there were three taxes that everybody had to pay. Uh, a land tax. One-tenth of uh, grain and one-fifth of your wine and oil. A poll tax, all men, 14 through 65. Women, 12 through 65, had to pay a poll tax. Income tax, 1%. That would be great, wouldn't it, if we only had to pay 1%. And But all these taxes, but it wasn't those. Those were kind of a given. And people didn't like paying those taxes any more than we really like paying our taxes. But at least you could kind of understand those taxes. In one way, they were fixed. Why the tax collectors were so hated and so despised is that they could collect over and beyond on other taxes, the tax on goods along the trade routes of anything that they wanted. The person in front of you, they could say 3%. Now, now you own a business, Ricky, and if I owned a business and, and I was up there and they said, okay, 3%. And so in your mind, as you're waiting, you hear that, and you can say, okay, I'm, I'm ready for 3%. And then when you get up there, Matthew, Levi, says 5%. Now, we didn't prepare this beforehand, but, but how would you feel? I would be shocked. Shocked. That, that's probably a calm way of saying. Would there be any passion or anger, a word of explanation that you would want? You know, why me? Why 3% and 5%? I mean, think about it, guys. Isn't it amazing how when we feel like something is unjust, how quickly, even usually calm people, have you ever had to wait for a restaurant and you know that these people came in after you? I mean, you know that they did because you've already been standing there 10 minutes and then all of a sudden they get seated before you. And that little sense of injustice over eating your meal and that they're going to be able to eat before you, you're going, you know, even Christians, you know, that's not fair. It's amazing how fast something can become a passion within us and we can passionately respond over the most simple things. You start getting in my pocket. <laughs> you start getting my billfold. <laughs> you give one person 3%, the next person 6% or 10%. This is why the tax collectors were not only hated and despised, but they were just thought of as truly the worst of all sinners. Tax collectors would buy the rights to collect anything that they wanted to above and beyond what the Romans desired. Let's just say the Romans said 3%. Well, they could charge you 5% and they kept that 2%. Do you remember that story of Zacchaeus? Remember in the story of Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. And remember that when he comes into salvation, when he comes into to, to, to know Christ and to trust Christ, do you remember what he says? I will pay back anybody fourfold of what I took for you. The fourfold of what he took from them is what he's talking about, that difference between what they really owed and what he had collected. 
Matthew and Levi, I mean Matthew, Levi was a hated person. And even I imagine the disciples, we really don't see a lot of the reaction of the disciples in this story, but we do see the reaction of the religious leaders. Look again at verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. When many of the other disciples followed Jesus, in a way they left their business. But Peter, for example, let's say that he followed Jesus for a year, two years. Was there still going to be a fishing business to go back to, perhaps? Perhaps, yes. That was not the case here. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, in the harmonizing of this gospel, it says, And after leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. When Levi left, when Matthew left, he truly left the business behind because he could not go back. The Romans were immediately going to sell that lot back out to somebody. So when Peter says, okay, we left you know, the fishing business behind, in a way they did, but he could always go back to fishing. Matthew could not. He truly did leave everything behind, and that's why Luke tells us that. Now, Jesus would, that Jesus would even consider somebody like Matthew was unthinkable to the Jewish people. Look what happens in verse 15. And as Jesus reclined, as he reclined at the table at his house, many, um, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Remember, the Pharisees were the ones that kind of carried out the law. It was the scribes that kind of interpreted the law. They were the ones that said, this is right and this is wrong. They look upon this, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they looked upon it, they said, you know, Jesus, you're eating with the most vile of sinners. And as unorthodox as Jesus was compared to the Pharisees, this was beyond their comprehension. To them, it was a sin to actually sit down and eat with sinners. It wasn't one of the Ten Commandments, but it was one of the ones that they added on. Remember that the Pharisees and the scribes, they added 613 additional laws. As if the Ten Commandments were not enough. Jesus summed it down to one commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, all that you are. And love your neighbors yourself. He said, you want to live life holy before a holy God? This is a way that you can do it. He summed it up in one commandment. And if Ten Commandments were not enough, the Pharisees and the scribes went out and they began to say, okay, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy? And they began to add all these additional laws. There were 365 negative laws out of those 613 and 248 positive. In other words, a lot more thou shalt not than thou shalt. And one of the thou shalt not, you don't sit down and have supper with sinners such as these. You can almost see the shock, even in Mark's writing, as he mentions the fact that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. How many times do you see that phrase in this verse? 
collectively. Three times. When you read verse 16 and 17, uh, verse 16, uh, three times. Almost as if to say, you know, have you ever had somebody uh, say, oh, did I mention tax collectors and sinners? Mark is making a point here of why this is so offensive and that he is sitting down with these tax collectors and sinners. They just kind of point to these, this out. And, um, even the Pharisees, even their name meant to separate. That's what Pharisee means. Separate ones. And so they, they saw them to separate themselves from sin. They could not imagine anyone who was holy, a rabbi, a priest, who wanted to sit down with sinners, much less the Messiah, one who claimed truly be the very son of the living God. But Jesus hears them asking his disciples about this whole thing, and he responds in one of the clearest displays of his mission and the very heart of the gospel. Look at verse 17. I would say that it's probably the, the primary verse of this passage. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, let's just stop there. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I'm not talking about well checkups and going in there for your yearly checkup. Does it make sense to you, the the basic premise that Jesus is saying, okay, a doctor is needed for those who are sick. And so he makes a case for something that you really can't argue against. I mean, that's logical. He takes this absurdity of why would the Messiah sit down with sinners, and he comes back with something that is very logical. He goes from what they thought was absurd to kind of human logic. Now look what he says. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He uses a logical explanation. Who is it that needs a doctor? It's sick people. And then he puts himself into that logic. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is where we can find great application in our lives today. Jesus used an illustration that it's hard to argue with. And yet, the biggest problem of the Pharisees is that they did not understand and recognize their own sickness. This was a continual theme in the ministry of Christ. Remember the, the parable of the prodigal son? But we focus on that prodigal son, the one who went out and, as I learned it in the King James, did riotous living, you know, that he just did, in other words, all this, he was this rebellious guy. He went out there and did every kind of sin that you can imagine. And it was the older brother at home that really was the one that was greatly offended. Dad, why haven't you celebrated with me? I I stayed home. I didn't go off and just have this wayward life. The whole point of that parable, we put a lot of emphasis on the prodigal. And and in in part so, because we are the prodigals. But we have to be very, very careful that in our salvation and in our coming to Christ, that we do not become the older brother. And that really, when you look at the context of that parable, was Jesus' point. The Pharisees were in that crowd that day when he told those three parables that we find in Luke 15. And he tells these three parables in purpose. And he's illustrating to them their righteous attitudes. 
I don't know that there's anything that's more offensive to me. Personal, this is just Bobby, okay? Than somebody with a haughty, righteous attitude. Have you found that to be true in your life? I mean, somebody who truly is this haughty, righteous, Lord over everything in the room kind of attitude. That, that just, I don't know, I guess my heart, my mind just kind of rebels against that. What I'm drawn to is a person of humility. I would argue in my understanding of the Christian walk after salvation, that one of the greatest traits of maturity in Christ would be humility. Show me somebody who truly is humble in Christ, humble in the way that they carry out their lives and in relationship to their relationship with Christ. And and I see a mature person, not a piety, not a righteousness, a nose up in the air, but, but actually this brokenness. And this is the continual thing that we see in the ministry of Christ. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They were very good. Don't get me wrong. They were very good at keeping the laws. But they were very bad at recognizing their own hearts. They had turned what God intended to be a relationship with him into a religious system. And and you and I are very prone to that. Because there's an attraction to a religious system. When you have boxes to check, it's kind of you know, upon us to go out and live in such a way. Check, 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 check. Could you go out and check a lot of religious boxes and never really have an intimate relationship with a holy God? Yeah. Man, I, again, guys, I don't know if I would have been on the side of the Pharisees of that day. If I would have been so caught up in my religious beliefs and kind of that, that, that mindset that I would have been one of those that would have been going, oh, when I saw Jesus sitting down, I, I don't know. And I think all of us really cannot tell where we would have been in that crowd that day if we would have been one of those that was just wondering. If we would have been one of those sinners going, finally, the, the real Messiah has come. I've been sick for so long and I needed a doctor and God has sent this Messiah, this doctor. They had turned, the Pharisees had turned God's intention of this relationship into a checklist. And the one with the most good marks wins. And the one with the most bad marks gets cast out. This is not the gospel. This is not the gospel. If we have any grasp on biblical truth whatsoever, we are the chief of sinners. All of us. What, what, what Paul said in his writing to Timothy was not just for kind of religious information. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, Paul writes this. And I don't think he's blowing theological smoke. He said, this saying is what? Trustworthy. And deserving of what? Full acceptance. In other words, I mean, so Paul, are you saying that all the rest of your, you know, writings are not trustworthy? Are you saying that the rest? But you know, when, when do you say, hey, I, I mean, I'm really telling the truth now. Do you mean that everything else that you said was not the truth? Are you doing that to emphasize this is so true? Well, we use that kind of verbiage even today. 
And so he says, look, this saying is trustworthy. Not that the other writings of Paul weren't. This is deserving of full acceptance. Not that the others weren't. He just says, guys, I want you to grasp this so deeply. And what was this that he wanted us to grasp? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Is he blowing theological smoke? Or do you think that there was a sincerity in Paul as he wrote to Timothy? The more Paul grew in likeness to Christ Jesus, the more understanding that he had of how truly saved he was, the more understanding that he had of his wretchedness before. Folks, we weren't a little off skew. We were, the Bible says that we were the enemies of holy God. Does God say this so that he can just take our sinful noses and, and rub our noses? No. He wants us to know the bad news so that we can realize just how good the good news is. He rec- Paul recognized his own sin and sinfulness. He said, man, those that need a doctor, I'll stand first in line because I'm the chief of all sinners. I've had people argue, and that's fine. We're, we're all entitled to our own interpretations. We're all entitled to, to kind of grasping and wrestling with this. I, I just try, want to be as consistent to the word of God as I possibly humanly can. And, and folks, I've had discussion. People say, I just don't know that the Christian life wants me to be reminded of my sin. And I'm going, but... Scripture says that. There's this phrase that we often use, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That is not for us to to go around, oh, woe is me. No, it is to go around, I'm a child of the living God. I don't deserve it. I've been saved by grace and grace alone. I rejoice in this. But we preach the gospel for, for two reasons. Number one, to remember where we were and where God has taken us. But this is to me one of the reasons we preach the gospel to ourselves so that I can have a humility and a compassion for lost people that are still in their sin, that haven't seen the truth of Christ yet. Does that make sense? That when we kind of alleviate ourselves out of, you know, I've been a Christian for 35 years and I just don't do those things anymore. Praise God. Praise God. But except for this Messiah, except for the Holy Spirit, as I understand what the scripture is, unless he opened my eyes to my sinfulness, I would have not known my need for a savior. I cannot claim any of the work of my salvation. I can't claim any of it. It all goes to the holiness, the beauty, and the love of this great God. One of the phrases, and I don't know who coined it, maybe you can do research and find out that I just love about the gospel, is I'm simply a beggar who was hungry, who found food, and now I see other people that are hungry, and I want to share this food with them. I want them to know how they can have their fill of this one who is truly the bread of life. How passionately did Jesus feel this? Are we sure that we're interpreting this correctly? We'll look in Luke chapter 18 and we'll close after this. 
Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. A parable is a story that illustrates spiritual truth, kingdom truth. And he just happens in this parable to use a Pharisee and a tax collector. Almost as if some of those like Peter and James and John are sitting in the background. Oh, remember that day? Remember that day? I bet he's thinking of them. But it's a parable. And look what he says. Luke 18.10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Dear folks, this is the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not how good we are. And therefore, God is pleased. The heart of the gospel is how good Christ is. And because of his death, resurrection, and his work, God is pleased. And God is only pleased in us when we are in Christ. how easy it is. Even in the day that we live, and even 2,000 years ago, to make it a list of check marks of goodness and badness. When we rely totally on the finished work of Christ and the rightness, for our rightness before a holy God, how can we not have compassion on sinners? we not? When you have not done one single thing to deserve the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ, how could we ever in any way not have compassion and humility in our walk? This doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. Jesus never didn't call sin, sin. And yet he always kept his eye on the mission. And that was to come to these sinners. To present to them eternal life. Let's pray together. Father God, it's easy to read a story like this in the event of, of your son's life. And, and Father, to come away going, okay, I think I would have been you know, so thankful that, that Jesus came for the sinners. And I, I think I would have been maybe sitting in the, in the seat of those sinners Well, certainly, Father, we are sinners. And yet, Father, I I don't honestly know where I would have been in that day if I would have been among the scribes and the Pharisees, Father. If I would have been among those that looked down and said, why is Jesus even with that crowd? And so, Father, today, if we fast forward 2,000 years, Father, will you give us that spirit of humility? Will you give us a full understanding of our sinfulness so that we can have a fuller understanding 
of just how amazing this grace is that you saved us by. Brother, we don't like bad news. But we'll never understand how, just how good this good news is, Father, until we know the, the darkness, the blackness, the separation, Father, that we deserved. Because we were not a friend of God. Father, you said that we were your enemy. So, Father, today I thank you that Jesus, a friend of sinners. Because I was one of those. And so, Father, I thank you that through his work, Father, you have transformed me from one that would be forever separated from you, Father, to one who will live with you forever and ever and ever. All because of grace. All because of Christ. And Father, that's where I place my faith this morning. Let that humble us, Father. We love you and we thank you as we pray all these things in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.